uh, we're going to take a, a look at another psalm, Psalm 141. So if you have your Bibles handy, please turn there with me. You'll, as always, note that the words also appear behind me on the screen if you don't have a Bible. The psalm uh, that we'll engage tonight, uh, we'll engage by looking at it as a psalm that contains three parts or three sections, all of which together are forming a single prayer that's being lifted by the psalmist David, the king of Israel, to his God. The first section I would sort of describe as being one that contains in the first two verses uh, an introductory prelude to the prayer, but also in that prelude we find the beginning request being made by David to his Lord. What David is asking of God in this introduction is to be uh, speedy in his help for David in his present difficulties. The second part of the psalm is found in verses 3 to all but the last verse of, uh, or last sentence rather, of verse 5. And there we find the psalmist asking for God's wise intervention as the psalmist is facing a possibility of doing evil himself or engaging in specific sins himself. The final section from the end of verse 5 to verse 10 finds the psalmist asking for God to preserve the psalmist and that God would deliver him and also vindicate to him by punishing the wicked. Now having noted that to be the structure, at least briefly noting it to be the structure, what I'll also be doing tonight is something I've done occasionally before and that is to take these parts in a slightly different order than where they're actually found in the psalm because I want to really address the second part, the middle part, last. Now, please know, I, I've said this before, but please know when I do something like that, that I'm not at all pretending that I know how to better order the psalm than the psalmist did. And the psalmist, of course, was carried along by the Spirit of God. I changed the order because there's something in this second part, the last part that we'll look at tonight, that I particularly want us to focus on, and I think we'll do that best by withholding it to the end. So with all that said, let's read the psalm, read it in the order that it was given to us by God, and then we'll explore the parts in depth in the order I've outlined. So let's pray, and then we'll read this text. Let's pray once again. Our Father in heaven, as we come to, to this psalm tonight, we, we can see in it that it is a prayer itself, and we ask, Lord, that it might help us as we seek to pray well. Guide us through the psalm, teach us how to pray by it, Help us to understand more about what we should know about you and what we should know about ourselves. And Lord, then use your word as always to transform our lives. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So it's uh, Psalm 141 and the superscription to the psalm identifies it as a psalm of David. David writes, O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands at the evening sacrifice. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil to busy myself with wicked deeds. In company with men who work iniquity and let me not eat of their delicacies. Let a righteous man strike me. It is kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Yet my prayer is continually 
against their evil deeds. When their judges are thrown over the cliff, then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. As when one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. But my eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord. In you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. Keep me from the trap that they have laid for me and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. So as I said, we have the introductory part of this psalm that's found in the first two verses. And the beginning of the psalm really is the beginning to a prayer. And the first thing we learn from the first words of the prayer is that our psalmist David sees his need as something that's quite urgent. He asks the Lord to hasten to him. That is, that the Lord act quickly. And the urgency of the request is amplified all the more as we see that David has begun by saying the obvious. Lord, I call upon you. And then he follows that by saying, give ear to my voice when I call to you. In just one verse, this first verse, David says, I call. He asks God to hear his call. And then he asks that God would act and act with haste. And all this sort of creates a demanding tone to David's plea. But that the urgency in that demanding tone is not at all presumptuous either. That's seen mostly by us moving on to the second verse where we find David asking of the Lord, Lord, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up my hands as the evening sacrifice. In the tabernacle of the Lord, there was an altar of incense on which the first high priest, Aaron, was to burn incense. The burning of the incense created a fragrant aroma meant to be pleasing to God. And that aroma from the smoke would rise from the altar as if it was being lifted to the heavens to be received by the Lord. And then in Revelation 8, that, that New Testament passage that we read earlier, we learn specifically of a significance associated with that rising of incense. The incense is described there as being that aroma, but it's an aroma which is carrying with it the prayers of the saints. The point is, is that David, by his words, is asking that his prayers be received by God as if that pleasant thing, a pleasing prayer that God would really be pleased to answer just as David has asked. In a way, it's always pleasing to God to hear the righteous prayers of his people. And then we also see that David is not only beginning his prayer, asking that the Lord receive his prayer as if it's this pleasing incense. He's also asking that the prayers be counted almost as if it's associated with David's praise to God, as if God as if David, rather, is lifting up his hands as part of that evening sacrifice of praise to God. So in this short second verse, we see that David knows the true source of his hope, the true source of his help. It is his God. And David knows it pleases God to hear prayers, prayers humbly raised. He praises him when his people turn to him to express their dependence upon him. What a fitting way to begin a prayer. Well, as I said, for my purposes tonight, let's skip over verses 3 
through most of verse 5 for now and go instead to the ending of the prayer. The ending begins at that last sentence of verse 5. And it ends with the end, with verse 10. In this last part of the psalm, uh, the psalm that is a prayer, uh, the reason for David's urgency sort of starts becoming clearer into focus. As we often see with David's psalms, David has his human enemies. So his prayer, in part, is a prayer for God to act against the evil deeds of other people. It's a petition of a prayer against these evildoers. His prayer is for his enemy's demise. He prays for the death in harsh ways, for the judges of these people who are his enemies. He prays that they might be thrown over a cliff. And David prays showing that he's convinced that by such actions, the judges' peoples, his enemies, will understand and see the goodness in David's words, the pleasantness to his words. You know, much of this last part of the psalm is difficult to follow, but when Paul says in verse 7, as when one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. Those words are probably best understood to be words spoken by the enemy's people or the enemies who are a people whose judges have been thrown from that top of the cliff in answer to David's prayer. The words depict the thought most likely that as easily as a farmer breaks up the earth for planting, easily as as well will the bones of the wicked be scattered in death. The people of the enemy, in essence, have realized that the judgment from God upon their leaders, these judges, has been a just punishment. Now, David also closes his prayer asking for his enemies to be trapped in the same type of trap as his enemies had laid for him. He wants the enemy to become caught up in their own snare, that it might become an instrument for their own destruction. David's desire and his prayer is that the evildoer fall into their own nets, even as he passes safely by. And while David is asking in these ways for the destruction of his enemies, for the destruction of these evildoers, he is asking for his own protection by God. Verse 8, we see that. But my eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord. In you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. Now, I know I sound like a broken record sometimes, but I again caution us, if and when we pray for our uh, our own prayers in a similar manner as the ending portion of David's prayer. I think this is now the, the third consecutive evening worship. I've said something like this, but I think we need to be cautious because while it's not wrong when we ourselves who are trusting in the Lord and especially suffering at the hands of evil people on the account of our faith to pray in a manner to ask that God end our suffering and end this persecution, even if it means the persecutor's harm. It's not wrong to desire to have God vindicated by the destruction of those who wish ill upon God's people. So we can pray that way, but we need to pray cautiously. We need to understand that that this is a judgment that should only fall on those who refuse to repent. We need to be cautious because our vision is not divine and we can err in our presumptions. The enemies of God who will not return to God and to repent of their sin and turn to God through Christ, well, they deserve their destruction. But our difficulty is knowing whether seeming enemies of God are among those eternally condemned. 
So we do better to maybe pray for an enemy's repentance and if praying for their destruction of an enemy to make that prayer conditional, make it lifted up on the condition that this destruction comes only if repentance is refused. Now that brings us now to the second portion of the psalm which we take lastly tonight, verse 3 through most of verse 5. The urgency to David's prayer is again still present, but the focus changes because David here is deeply concerned with the possibility of his own sin arising or increasing. David prays, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds in the company with men who work iniquity, and let me not eat of their delicacies. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. David is here now praying to be delivered from his own potential evils. Do not let my heart inclined to any evil to busy myself with wicked deeds. And it seems that one of the primary motivations for a prayer like this is because David perceives that the more he is surrounded by the evil of others, especially when those others might direct their evil towards him, the more likely he might be inclined to respond with equal wrongs. So he prays to God and he asks God that if and when he is in company with evil men who work iniquity, that God would not let him eat of their delicacies. You see, the threat from an enemy is never only the evil that we face from the enemy. The more evil is present and the more evil is surrounding us, the more we need to be preserved from our own sin, preserved from that possibility of compromise of our godly ways, preserved from engaging in hypocrisy, preserved from seeking our own way rather than God's way. Have any of you here been aware of that potential in yourselves? Sometimes evil is all around us, and it can cause us to be attracted to the evil, and then maybe as a result, as I just said, we compromise our holiness. And how often it seems to be that when and if we might have a word of wrath spoken against us, we react with great and unwarranted furor ourselves rather than with that gentle word that turns the wrath back, as the Proverbs teach us to do. You've probably seen the modern example of how rage exhibited, even by one who is a Christian driving on the road, might bring another Christian to an unmeasured, an unmeasured, an unmeasured rather, and unmerited rage in response. And perhaps we should make special note that when David asks to be kept from sinning, that he also begins specifically by asking that God would set a guard over his mouth and keep watch over the door of his lips. Isn't it true that often that's where human sin is first seen by fellow human beings? Our sin is seen and heard through the use of the words that come from our mouths. I'm reminded of the book of James when I read of something like that. James, who I take to be the brother of Jesus, wrote of the tongue in this way. He said, the tongue is a fire, 
a word of a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set upon our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. The truth is, is that what we say verbally can be itself quite vile. But in some way, the tongue will always be an indicator of what's really in our hearts. If we speak what's on our hearts and what comes out of our mouths are hateful, uncaring sayings or words, words with warrantless anger, we know that that reflects a dark heart. Kind words, on the other hand, by the same token, generally reflect a kind heart. And if they don't, well, if they don't, it's because our sweet-sounding words are really lies. And then our lying words will also, in a way, reflect a malicious heart within, a deceitful heart. And then having addressed the tongue, David, in the psalm, does do that. He goes to the heart. David also prays that God would not let his heart be inclined to any evil. If outward words need to be controlled because they reflect the sinful heart, the problem is more a problem of the heart, right? And not the tongue. And if the heart is not inclined to the evil words, it will be more pure. The tongue will be more pure. So David prays that his tongue be guarded by God, that his heart would not be inclined toward evil. And then David also adds one more thing that his life would not be busied with wicked deeds. Sinful desires of the heart affects not only what we say, but the sinful heart affects what we also do. A godly control of the tongue is usually a positive sign that the heart is in the right place. And with the heart in the right place, the tongue is controlled, and it only follows that the sinner then will also be in better control of his whole life. But a hateful tongue... A hateful heart, rather, makes the whole of a life go wrong. And don't you just love how David's prayer includes a petition that should a righteous man rebuke him, even strike him, if and when his sin surfaces in the face of other, of other evils, that such a sharp rebuke would be received by him as a kindness. He is asked that the rebuke he received be a soothing for his head, that the head would not refuse it. What a prayer that is. What a prayer. And almost unknown in our world today. A teacher disciplines a student rightfully and faces firing. A parent corrects a child, and that inspires the tumult from the spoiled youth. You all know what I mean, I suppose. But David's prayer is actually asking that God would place in David's life godly correction and that he would have a spirit that would welcome the correction, even when it's harsh, even when it's a, a hard rebuke. It's interesting, I think, that church discipline, though at present time a fading mark of the church in many churches, is seldom received with words thanking the leader for the scriptural rebuke that's received. Well, I wonder if any here resonate much with the situation in the spirit of David as revealed in the whole of the prayer. 
Do any here perhaps feel that we're under attack? Maybe someone is speaking unkindly about your character or seeking to slander you and your work so as to undermine your road towards advancement. Is someone maybe taking pains to get you in trouble at your school? If you do feel that way or in some similar way now, or if maybe you feel that way in the future, how will you respond? By being drawn to more evil? Or you respond by, or will you respond by turning to your God in prayer and asking for his help? Don't we learn so much from David's prayer? I'm really, really in awe of how central in his prayer is his request to keep him from evil. He doesn't pray at all for more wealth or more power or more prestige. His central petition is that God work in him to make it so that an evil heart would not arise and he would more be moved toward good. Yes, he prays for deliverance from enemies. And yes, he prays for the enemy's demise. But what he seems to want most is for himself to be kept pure even in face of evils. What he wants most is to be corrected when he errs. And that's the central part of his prayer. What an example for us all. May we always pray that way. Let's pray now.